Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, and you'll want to mark Hebrews in your Bible because today we're going to start walking through this book of the Bible together. As we come to the book of Hebrews, this letter of the Hebrews, it's important to understand the, the context in which it was written. This is a letter written to believers who are enduring trials and enduring suffering. And it's written to encourage them to stay steadfast and to trust in Christ during those trials. Now, we don't know who wrote this letter to the Hebrews. The authors never identified. There have been many uh, thoughts over the years from pastors, commentators, theologians. But, but what we do know is what the writer wrote. That this is the inspired word of God to encourage us to stay steadfast. Uh, he focuses on the supremacy of Christ, the sufficiency of of his work and the necessity of faith in Christ for salvation. And these are the recurring themes that we see throughout this letter. And so I pray that God will use this study as a great encouragement in the life of our church body here at Bloomfield Baptist Church. And so today we're going to start just with the first three verses, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And out of reverence for the word of God, if you're able to, if you would stand together as I read God's holy word for us. This is what our God says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. If you would, pray with me. Father, we thank you that you have spoken your word to us. And yet, Lord, I am aware, even as I pray, of my own tendency at times not to listen i'm very aware that for many of us we we struggle to listen to your word we struggle to obey your word we struggle to do that which you have called us to do and so i pray as we go through this study as we begin to walk through the book of hebrews today lord that you would work through the power of your holy spirit and that you would bring us to repentance that you would encourage us in faith and Lord, that you might help us to clearly see and respond to the gospel of our Lord Jesus. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I've shared before about a common story that's been told over the ages. It's a story about blind men who encounter an elephant. It goes back to a poem that was written in the late 1800s by a man named John Godfrey Sachs. And the poem is meant to describe and explain how so many people try to learn about God and know God and worship God, and yet how none of us can really know what God is truly like. And so hey, he describes it through the illustration of an elephant and a group of blind men that encounter the elephant. And he talks about the blind man who comes up to the side of the elephant and feels this, this sturdy structure and says, well, well, what I'm feeling must be a wall. 
another is towards the end of the elephant and, and grabs onto the tail and says, well, no, what, what I'm feeling feels more like a rope. Another feels the, the tusk of the elephant and says, no, I believe this is a spear. Yet another feels the trunk of the elephant and says, no, you guys are all wrong. This, this is certainly some type of snake. Another blind man comes along and, and starts to try to put his arms around the, the leg of the elephant and says, no, I, I think this is more of a, of a tree. And, and yet another feels the, the ear flopping and says, well, this must be some type of fan. Hey, he goes on in this poem to describe how all these blind men are describing their experience, and yet none of them are fully able to understand what it is they are experiencing. And he writes it this way. And so these men of Indistan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right, and all were in the wrong. So often theologic wars, the disputants I ween, rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean, and prayed about an elephant not one of them has seen. The point of this poem is that all the religions in the world, whether it's Hinduism or Buddhism or Christianity or Islam, we're, we're all trying to describe the indescribable. We're all trying to approach God in our own terms. And so to one it looks this way, to another this way, but yet none of us can fully grasp what it is, just as the blind man can't grasp the nature of an elephant. But there's a problem with this analogy. The problem comes when the elephant speaks. <laughs> When the elephant says, uh, I'm not a wall, I'm an elephant. <laughs> I'm not a rope, I'm an elephant. I'm not a spear, I'm not a tree, I'm not any of these things you are describing to me. I will tell you who I am. Friends, Christianity is not the attempt of a blind man to describe that which cannot be described. We are responding to that which God has said of himself. God has spoken. God has told us who He is, who He created us to be. God has told us through His Word how we might come into a right relationship with Him. The question for us is, will we listen? And that's what I want us to consider as we begin to walk through this letter to the Hebrews, this letter to a people who were suffering and were in trial and were tempted to walk away from the faith altogether. And the writer under the inspiration of the Spirit is helping them to say, see, no, don't walk away from that which God has spoken and that which God has given you. And so we're going to walk through these first three verses. I want to make three points about them that help us to see kind of what, what the author is setting before us, the writer setting before us and helping us to understand how we are to respond in the midst of trial and where he's going to go in this letter. We'll begin with the first point there in your outline. Number one, we see that God has revealed himself to us through his word. He's revealed himself to us through his word. God has spoken. God has told us. God has revealed himself to us. How, how, how do you get to know someone? You, you listen to them. They, they reveal themselves. They, they speak. They communicate in some way. And that's what God has done for us. Notice how the writer of Hebrews says it. Verse 1. Long ago. He begins by pointing our attention back to the, to the very beginning. And what do we find in the beginning? Well, leave your kind of mark there in Hebrews and turn to Genesis 1 with me and we'll see what we find. 
In Genesis 1, we begin, in the beginning, verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. And we see we worship a creator God who out of nothing created everything. And, and we see in Genesis 1 how it is that God created. Just follow down through the text and what do you see? Verse 3, and God said. Think about that for a moment. And God said, let there be light and there was light. God didn't need to say anything. God could just create God could just in a moment have everything come into being. And yet, how the scripture unfolds the story here is over and over again we see God speaking creation into being. God said, God said, God said. And as God said, it came to be. Even in that creative work, we see God revealing who He is. He is the creator God through His spoken word. The psalmist points us back to this in Psalm 33, verse 9. In reference to creation, the psalmist writes, For he spoke, and it came to be. When we see the awesomeness of God here, and that, that God's the only one who can speak, and it comes to be. I mean, maybe we, we think we have some power at times. We think we have some, 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 some way of making things happen. I, I, I'm going to say this, and someone's going to do this, but someone has to do that, which we say. We, we don't say and then the result appears. We, we say and someone has to do. Here, God just says and then it is. And he does this through speaking, through his creative work. And not only does God speak creation into being, then we see God speaks to the creation that he created. <laughs> so he doesn't stop speaking and creating, then he speaks to his creation. And so he, he speaks to Adam and Eve. He, he talks to them. So God didn't just create Adam and Eve in some robotic fashion where he had pre-programmed them with knowledge and understanding. No, God is speaking and, and teaching and training and helping them to understand the world that he's created around them. What we see, for example, in the garden, he's explaining to them his whole creation, the order of his creation, the, the, the place they have in that creation, and he's explaining to them rules and responsibilities and boundaries. He says to them, you can eat of any tree here. But don't eat of the tree of knowledge, good and evil, because the day you eat of it, you will die. Many people look at that and say, well, that's, that's kind of an odd thing. Why would God do that? But we've addressed this before. God was helping his creation to see that, that while they had dominion, they didn't have ultimate dominion. That they weren't God. He was God. And he had set this aside, and he did it for good reason and good purpose for their good. And yet, as he speaks, they're listening and obeying until they're not. And then they disobey the spoken word of God and they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How do they come to do that? Well, we often think about how Adam and Eve were tempted by the enemy to eat of this fruit and how the enemy leads them to it. We think of it in the way that, that, that we are tempted. We see something we desire and we want. But, but notice the way that they are tempted is to question what God said. God had spoken creation into being, then he speaks to his creation, then he speaks and gives them order and responsibility and command, and then what is it that leads them to this sin? It is to question what God actually said. You turn your page there, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Did God actually say? 
This is a good time to note that the schemes of the enemy have not changed since the beginning. That we are tempted still in this same way. That, that the enemy wants to bring into question before you and before me today. Did God actually say? Oftentimes in our propensity to sin, that this is the question that we ask. This is the question we're led to believe. Did, did, did God actually say that Jesus is the only way to God? I mean, there's people all over the world who've never heard the gospel. There's people who don't name the G, not know the name of Jesus. That, that doesn't seem very fair that God would attempt, uh, condemn them to hell. I mean, sure, there's people who've had the chance to hear. They've rejected. But, but what about those other people? Did, did, did God really say that Jesus is the only way? I mean, does God really say in his word that marriage is to be between a man and a woman in a covenant relationship for life with one another? Does he really say that? I mean, what if just two people love each other and they're committed to each other? I mean, God wants us to be happy, doesn't he? I mean, did, did, did he really say this? Did, did God really say that intimacy then should be reserved for that context of marriage between a man and a woman? I mean, after all, I mean, gosh, God programmed us this way and he, he made us with these desires. I mean, wouldn't God want us to be happy? Did, did he really say these things? I mean, did, did God really say I need to love my enemies? That I need to forgive those who've offended me? Did, did God, God really say these things? And we could walk through each one of those. God absolutely did say these things, but the, the temptation in us is to start to doubt it. And then we can even twist this another way. And rather than asking, did, did God really say? We start to say, well, didn't God say? And we follow that with things he didn't say. In fact, I've been in ministry for a number of years now. I've had many people say to me, well, pastor, didn't God say? And, and, and I can almost universally just say, no, he didn't. Because so often that statement is followed by something that's not in the Scripture. For example, well, didn't God say God helps those who help themselves? Didn't God say that He'll never give us more than we can handle? I mean, didn't God say He just wants us to be happy? No, He didn't say any of those things. Bumper stickers, maybe. Chicken soup for the soul, but not the word of God. And yet so often we're, we're tempted to believe there are things in the Bible that aren't actually in the Bible, and then we're tempted not to believe the things that God has said of himself. And, and the question then is, how, how do we sort through this? How, how do we understand what it is that God truly said and what it is God did not say. And what we find is that we're able to do that by simply opening up the Word of God and becoming a student of it. What did He say? What's in here? What did He not say? What's not in here? And yet so often we're so informed by so many other sources and so many other things. And so the writer of Hebrews here starts us off in verse in chapter 1, verse 1, with this reminder. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He's reminding us here that God not only creates by speaking and not only speaks to His creation, but He doesn't stop there. He continues to speak. 
In fact, what should really astound us here is that God continues to speak to a creation that rebels against Him. You think about how God responds to Adam and Eve. They disobey His command. They rebel against Him. And His response is to call out to them and to speak to them. Have you ever not spoken to someone because they offended you? Have you ever had someone who would not speak to you because they were offended by you? Or maybe they would speak, but they weren't really speaking. They're, they're acknowledging your existence, but they're, they, they have this barrier between you and them over the relationship because they have been hurt by you or you've been hurt by them. How many times do we hear that story play out? I've talked to so many people over the years and, and had this familiar conversation of, well, you know, that's so-and-so, and they're related to so-and-so, but they haven't talked for 25 years. Gosh, 25 years, what, what happened? Honestly, nobody remembers, but <laughs> something offended somebody, and now they don't speak. Has there ever been a greater offense than that which man has done against God? Than Adam and Eve's rebellion against the Holy God, than our rebellion against the Holy God, and yet how does God respond to our rebellion? Does he cut off all communication? Does he say to Adam and Eve, okay, not only am I removing you from my presence, but I'm done with you. I'm not saying another word to you, Adam and Eve. No, God speaks and man rebels and God speaks and man rebels and God continues to speak. He speaks to Abraham, he speaks to Moses, he speaks to the people through them, he speaks through the prophets. And the writer of Hebrews is making this point long ago at many ways, at many times. God spoke, God spoke, God spoke. A man sinned, man rebelled, God continued to speak and as he spoke, he reveals more and more about who he is to his creation, calls them to worship him. And when they rebel, when we rebel, he continues to speak. And what does he speak about? Well, that's where the writer takes us. He says he, he, he spoke pointing towards Jesus. That the fullness and the fruition of all these things God spoke are now before us in Jesus Christ. Which brings us to that second point there before you. Number two, Jesus is God's final word to us. Jesus is God's final word to us. Verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That, that phrase, last days, is one we normally associate with the, the imminent return of Jesus. We, we hear people talk about, well, we must be in the last days. These are the last days. The, the last days is a reference to the coming of Christ. And throughout the scripture, we very much do see that. There's this description of the last days as being the time between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. And, and so we're in the last days. We, we don't know the day or the hour. I mean, Jesus told us in Matthew 24, that's not for us to know. It'll be when we don't expect. But it's coming. We're to live our life in response to that. In Revelation chapter 22, very closing verses of scriptures, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. Every time we have the Lord's Supper together, we're, we're reminded when we take that unleavened bread that when God delivered his people out of Egypt, that there wasn't time for the bread to rise, that God delivers quickly when God delivers. 
And so it's a reminder to us to, to live in light of the return of Christ. So we, as we make our plans, we make our schedules, but we're to remember every day, this could be the day. I might not finish this sermon. <laughs> this side of eternity, Christ could come back any moment. Are you ready for that? And so we see this phrase throughout the scripture, last days, last days, last days, as a reminder that, that Christ is coming and coming soon. And yet it doesn't always mean that. And I think here in this context, the writer of Hebrews is actually using it in a bit of a different way. And notice again what he says. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. I think what the writer of Hebrews is wanting us to understand is that that we are now in this age of fulfillment where God's revelation has been made complete through Jesus. That, that he did all these different things in the past. He spoke through the prophets. He, he spoke from the heavens. He, he declared his glory to the people. He helped them to understand who he was. He spoke through all these prophets. And even as people sin, the prophets continue to speak on behalf of God. But now that all has come to fruition in and through Jesus Christ. He is the fullness of the revelation of God. Not just a part of it how Calvin said it he wrote it was not a part of the word that Christ brought but the last closing word and so everything in the Old Testament was pointing towards Jesus everything in the New Testament points at or points back to Jesus he is the fullness and the fruition of God's revelation he is God's final word to us and in fact we see this reminder in Hebrews that he wasn't just the final word he was the first word Look again at verse 2. Through whom also he created the world. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, long ago, here's what God did. All the way back in creation, he's always been presenting his word, his spoken word, so that we might know who he is. He's revealing himself to us. And now he's done that fully in Jesus Christ, who, by the way, was back in the beginning when he was revealing himself to us. I mean, John chapter 1, John says, in the beginning was the word. The Word was with God, the Word was God, and in, He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word is Christ. And so we see this glorious picture of God's revelation that, that He speaks the world into being, that, that Jesus is the Word through which the world was created. That He was the first and He is the last Word. Who notice verse 2 is he whom he has appointed to be the heir of all things. Jesus has absolute authority over the life of the believer. So, honestly, for the believer, you, you can never make the argument, well, I'm going to do this because this is what I really want to do. Or I'm going to do this because this is really what I deserve if that which you are doing is opposed or in opposition to the word of God, because that means Christ then is not the one who is sovereign over your life, you are. When we have this false notion that there's some delineation between, well, Jesus is my Savior, but he's not my Lord, and yet that's nowhere in the Scripture. He's either your Lord or he's not. He's either your Lord who saved you or he's not your Lord at all. We, we don't get part of Jesus and leave the other on the shelf. He, he either rules your life and has dominion, or he doesn't. 
And what the writer of Hebrews here is making clear is that, that God has given him all authority, all power, all revelation is through him. Therefore, we, we don't need anything else. So for the believer today, we don't need any additional revelation. You don't need a special word from God. You, you don't need a sign. You don't need another prophet. What you need is Jesus Christ. He is the fullness and the fruition of God's word and God's revelation to us. But we don't need anything else. Jesus is the only thing we need. And when we sang this just a moment ago about that firm foundation we have in Christ, what more can he say than to you he hath said? But what else do you need today other than Jesus? What else do you need? And you begin to honestly answer that question. It may be that you find that you weren't really trusting in Jesus to begin with. Because if we truly trust in Him, He is all we need. Remember the context in which this is written. Christians enduring suffering and trials. What are we tempted to do in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our suffering? We, we are tempted to ask God for that, that extra word, for that, that boost of encouragement. God, God, if you'll just show me something today, if you'll just speak to me in a special way today. And yet the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, it's, it's not an extra word that you need in the midst of trial. What you need is to go back to an old word. See, trials have a way of exposing to us whether we're really trusting in Jesus or not. I've shared before how the home we lived in for years in Bowling Green, we had these two massive Bradford pears in our front yard. The best I could figure, they were about 30, 35 years old. And so if, if you have a Bradford pear in your front yard that's 30 or 35 years old, you should also purchase a chainsaw. <laughs> But because the way these Bradford pears are, they just, they're thick and they're big and they grow thicker and bigger. And then a good storm comes by and it was the same summer. First storm, boop, first one down. Second storm, boop, second one down. And I got these two big old trees in my yard. And what I saw very clearly about both of them was this. If I looked at the tree while it was still standing, I would have thought, man, that tree's got to have huge roots because it's just a massive tree. But when the wind knocked it over, I looked and thought, how did that tree ever stand? I mean, just shallow, shallow roots that didn't go deep at all. And how did I find that out? Because the storm came and showed me that the tree doesn't grow roots in the middle of the storm. The storm reveals whether or not the tree has firm roots or not. And friends, that is so true in the Christian life as well. You find out in the midst of suffering and trial if your faith is truly rooted in Jesus or not. You don't just suddenly decide in that moment, I'm going to grow some roots now. <laughs> I mean, you might think it works that way. And yet we see time and time again those who are in the midst of trial, in the midst of hard time, well, I'm, I'm going to go to church and I'm going I'm to trust in Jesus and I'm, I'm just going to grow some roots and I'm just going to turn everything over to God and then things just get a little bit better. Well, I'm good now. You're not growing roots. You're, you're literally just taping pictures of apples onto yourself. It's not real fruit. It's the appearance of it. What is being addressed here 
by the writer of Hebrews is that it's, it's in the midst of these trials that, that we understand that we, we, we need to hold fast to Jesus. And so what he's now going to do throughout this first chapter is he's just going to unpack for us just the, the glory and, and the awesomeness of who Christ is. And you notice the title of your sermon says part one. Because <laughs> we're not going to get through all of that. But we're just going to scratch the surface. And when you scratch the surface of these first few verses, here's what you get. Point three. You see very clearly that Jesus is the greater prophet, the perfect priest, and the supreme king. He, he is the greater prophet. The, the writer of Hebrews is saying God spoke through all these prophets, but now we have something greater. He's the perfect priest. God, throughout these ages, he used all these different priests, but now he's the perfect high priest. He, he is the supreme king. God gave these kings and leaders to his people as they cried out for one, but now he is the true and better supreme king. Look at verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word, again, the spoken word, by the, the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But there is so, so much here. Again, we're just scratching the surface. But, but what we see clearly in these first three verses is that, that Jesus, he, he's the prophet, he's the priest, and he's the king. They, these three offices that were held throughout the Old Testament by different people at different times, now Jesus perfectly holds all of them at once. And this just points to his majesty. So how do we see this? He, he's the greater prophet. Jesus is the one that all the prophets were writing about. So he, he's greater. The, the prophets wrote about the word of God. Jesus is the word of God in flesh. Jesus is the one that, that all this prophecy was pointing towards. I was in a part of the world this last week in West Africa where the predominant religion is Islam. And in Islam they teach that Jesus is a prophet among many other prophets he's not the final prophet he's not even the greatest prophet he's just prophet and, and yet that's not how the word of god presents jesus to us we see that jesus is the one that all the prophets were pointing to and jesus even says of himself that he's the one all the prophets were pointing to so you may be familiar with the Closing words in, I believe it's Luke's gospel, there's the road to Emmaus. This is after the resurrection. There, there's men who are talking about all that's happened with Jesus and the resurrection. And, and here you have Jesus who in some way is kind of uh, hiding who he is from them and just kind of listening in on this conversation. And then he enters into this conversation. And then this is what the scripture tells us, Luke 24, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. And I, I would have loved to have been a fly on a backpack for that walk. I mean, Jesus just starts going through the, the Scripture. Okay, yeah, so you see in the beginning, yeah, that, that's me. And, oh, the Exodus, yeah, that's me. And the Red Sea, yeah, yeah, that's me. And, and all the law and the commandment, yeah, that's me. And the, the tabernacle, well, that's me. He just pointing out all these things are fulfilled in him. All the prophecies, they all point directly to Jesus. God had given his word through the prophets. Now the, the word made flesh is among them. He is the word. He's the, the greater prophet. What John's saying at the beginning of his gospel, Jesus is the Word. Here's the question. 
He's, he's the greater prophet. Is he your prophet? He, he's the word made flesh. He, he has commanded, he has given. Are you obeying? Are you listening to him? Are you playing that age-old little game? What did, did God really say? Did, did Jesus really mean? Or are you living in absolute submission to the authority of Jesus Christ and what he says? Who's in control of your life today? Who's on the throne of your life today? Is it Christ? Is he your Lord? Is he just the greater prophet, or is he your greater prophet? Right, of Hebrews goes on to help us see that Jesus is the perfect priest. Verse 3, after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You may remember in our study of the tabernacle as we were walking through Exodus together how specific God was about everything that was to be in the tabernacle and exactly the dimensions and how it was to be made and how it was to be laid out. And so you've got this picture. We, we, we can actually, you probably even have maybe in your Bible back there with your maps, you might have a little a depiction of the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies and, and the altar of incense and the lampstands and all, all these things. But you, you look at those pictures, you look at that description, there's one thing you're not going to find and it's a chair. There's no seat in the tabernacle. Why? Because the work's never finished. That the priest over and over again is making sacrifice for the sins of himself and the sins of his people. Year after year after year, over and over again. We're not sitting down in the chair because the work's still ongoing. And yet, what does the writer of Hebrews say about Jesus? After making purification for sins, he sat down. Do you know what that means? It's finished. Once and for all. Jesus died on the cross for every wicked, evil thing you were going to do. He didn't die on the cross and said, well, listen, I'm going to cover the first 20 years because you're probably going to mess up a lot then and... <laughs> You take care of the rest. Or I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll die on the cross for all the sins you're going to commit before you trust in me and become a Christian, then you're on your own. No, Jesus dies once and for all and pays the debt for our sins. See, that, the Scripture tells us we are all indebted to God for our sin. We, we all sin and we fall short of God's glory. It says the wages of sin is death. We, we deserve rightly the wrath of God for our sin. Well, doesn't it say? No, no, no. That, that's what it says, real clearly. But God demonstrates his love toward us, Romans 5, 8, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died in our place. He took the penalty that you and I deserve for our sin. That's the way the writer of Hebrews says it. He, he, he made purification for our sins. He died in our place. He took your judgment and mine upon himself on the cross, and he paid the debt in full, not in part, but in whole. And therefore, the, the, the slate's been wiped clean. He's, he's cleansed us through his blood. Well, pastor, you don't understand. I mean, I, I know Jesus died for my sin, but I tell you, I still mess up. Yeah, you do mess up. I do too. I don't want to know what's in your head right now, and you don't want to know what's in my head right now. We're messed up people. But Jesus Christ went to the cross for messed up people. And he died in our place, and there's this great exchange where through, through his death, we can receive his 
His righteousness. He, he takes what we deserve, we get what we don't deserve. There's this great exchange on the cross. And, and here, the writer of Hebrews is reminding us this is made possible because Jesus, Jesus is the perfect priest and now he's sat down and it's finished. So again, he's the perfect priest, but, but is he your perfect priest? Are, are you trusting in Jesus Christ fully for the debt that you owe? Or is there something inside you that thinks, well, no, I still I have to try harder, I have to do more, I have to do better. Jesus plus this. And if that's the case, you're, you're not trusting in him. You either trust in all of Jesus or you trust in none of Jesus. He's the perfect priest. Is he your perfect priest? And then third, we see here clearly that Jesus is the supreme king. Verse 2, God has appointed him heir of all things. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He, he's the eternal king of all kings. I mean, you think of just how we treat earthly kings. <laughs> and there's this honor and this reverence. Last week when we were in West Africa, we were in the capital city of Niger, Niamey, and <coughs> there was a, a motorcade coming through, and they're clearing the road, and they're getting ready, and they're putting up blockades, and the, the missionaries with us said, well, yeah, the, the president's about to come through. And maybe you've experienced that here in the States. I was in Nashville once, and traffic shut down, and, and everything's cleared the way. Why? Because the, the, the president's coming through. Make, make way for the president's coming. But, but there's a reminder here that Christ is, is the supreme king. He's so much greater than earthly leaders and worldly presidents and kings. He, he's the king of all kings. He'll reign for eternity. So, so we make way for the king. And we bow our knee in submission to the king. He has absolute authority because he's the supreme king. But is he your king? Is your life, I mean, just be honest for a moment, is your life today ruled by your passions and your desires and your wants? Or, or is the commanding force in your life today the absolute supremacy and authority of Jesus Christ? If he says, will you do? If he says, stop, will you stop? If he says, go, will you go? Are you living with your knee bent and bowed before the king of all kings? The scripture says you will bend it now or you will bend it later. But one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he truly is the king. Is he your king? Is he your priest? Is he your prophet? That's the question before us. Is he your everything? I read a story not long ago, and I'll close with this, of a brilliant conductor who led his orchestra through an almost absolutely perfect rendition of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And as he did it, that the people were just in awe so much that there was just this hush and this silence before the applause. And in that moment, this conductor looked at his orchestra and he said, I am nothing, 
you are nothing. Beethoven is everything. Friends, if someone would say that about a brilliant but dead composer, how much more are we to say that about the risen Christ? I'm nothing. You're nothing. But Jesus is everything. And the question is, is he your everything? When the storm comes and the wind blows, are you holding firmly to the cross of Jesus Christ? Is He your Lord today? And if not, what more must He say than He's already said? What more must He do than He's already done to bring you to a point of faith and repentance? He has been gracious and kind to you today to give you this moment to repent. This moment will not last forever. Will you trust in him today? If you would, stand with me as I pray for us. Father, we are certainly reminded from your word that Christ is everything. He is supreme. He is glorious. Well, we see this picture just in the first few verses of the opening chapter of Hebrews of just the the absolute authority and supremacy of Jesus Christ. And it's this Christ, this Supreme One, who went to the cross for our sins and died in our place that we might have life. Lord, you're, you're not forcing that on us this morning. You're calling to us. You've spoken to us through your word very clearly. You've called us to repent and to have faith and trust. But but Lord, our response, our response is one that, that we need to consider. Our response is one that we need to make. And so Lord, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would empower us to make that response of faith and of repentance and of trusting in you. I pray, God, for everyone here this morning. And there are some who have trusted in you for many years, but perhaps now in this hour, this day, they are struggling and they're in the midst of a trial or they're suffering. This is not how they thought life would come or perhaps they thought this circumstance they are in might come much later in life. And Lord, they're struggling. That they want some type of word from you, some type of sign from you. Lord, would you remind them of the words you've already given? That that Jesus is everything. That he's enough. Lord, for those who've yet to bend their knee and trust fully in Jesus, Lord, would you help them to see the absolute need to to surrender their life to Jesus today? Lord, we pray you would do this work. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.